This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is the show with all the latest mental health-related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And all that from your host, Dr. Scott Bay, a psychiatrist with more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, delivering the latest mental health news without the hype and distortion of other media sources. And welcome back again to the show. Appreciate those of you who listen in both on AmericasWebRadio.com, where you can hear the show first airing on Wednesday evenings at 7 and then replayed at different times. Check the schedule. And then also, as always, appreciate those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you very much for your support. And this is the Wednesday, October the 15th, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today, the show pre-recorded. And uh, again, thanks very much for all of those of you who have been loyal listeners. Hope to continue to keep up the standard that you're used to. And to start tonight's show, I would like to tell you about a disease that came up in the latest report about Americans' longevity and uh, life expectancy report that just came out this past week. Now, there's one disease that made the top ten list that is killing people in the United States that I want to tell you about in particular. This disease is not rare. Uh, about 15% of people, in some estimates, will suffer this at least once during their lifetime. It is not difficult to diagnose. It can be diagnosed with just a few quick questions in the doctor's office. It is treatable. There are treatments for it. And yet, upwards of 33,000 people in a year die from it. About four or so will die during the time it takes my show to air. I'm talking about depression. And of course, the death of depression is from suicide. Now, how can it be when there are diseases that people are screened for in their doctor's office each time they go? Things like high blood pressure, high blood sugar, heart disease, risk factors for stroke and heart attack. These things are all screened for routinely anytime people goes go to see their doctor for most any problem or at least their annual physical exam. So why is it that depression, which is the 10th leading cause of mortality in this country, 
is not being screened for on a regular basis. Well, first, let's take a look at the longevity report. The good news is that Americans are living longer than ever before. U.S. life expectancy inched up again and death rates fell. Rates also fell or held steady for nearly all the leading causes of death. The one exception, the suicide rate reached its highest point in 25 years. The figure has been increasing since 2000. And according to Robert Anderson, who oversees the Centers for Disease Prevention and Control branch that issued the report on longevity in the United States, said it's really hard to say why. Is it really? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why shortly. The yearly report looked at deaths in 2012. Now, I'll spare you with all the details of that. You can look it up if you want, but just looking at how it relates to mental health, the 10 leading causes of death remain the same with heart disease and cancer topping the list. Suicide is the 10th. The suicide rate rose more than 2% to 12.6 for suicide deaths per 100,000 Americans. That's the highest it's been since 1987 when the rate was 12.8. Now, some research suggests suicides increase during hard economic times, but this trend has persisted before, during, and after the recession of 2007 to 2009. So while that may be a convenient, easy answer, it does not seem to account for the entirety of the trend. Some experts have said the sale and abuse of prescription painkillers in the, in the last decade have been a contributing factor. That may be, but again, doesn't account for the entirety of the trend that's been observed for the length of time that it's been observed. The overall statistics suggest our society is getting better at medically managing conditions such as diabetes and heart disease. But apparently, we're not able to manage mental health as well, resulting in devastating results, the increasing suicide rate. Well, as for maybe other reasons why the suicide rate is increasing. Perhaps demographers could come up with the answer. If you remember some weeks back when we were talking about the Robin Williams suicide, it came up that the rates of suicide are higher among white middle-aged males. Okay, the demographic Mr. Williams was in. And as, so as for why the suicide rates are increasing recently, I think it might just be a simple demographic pattern. The aging of the baby boom generation, so a larger percentage of the population falls into that demographic, and that's why suicide rates are spiking. However, 
The bigger issue is how can this be stopped? Why is it that depression is not screened for routinely as for things as it is for things like diabetes and blood pressure and so on? Is it because primary care physicians are not comfortable diagnosing mental illness? Is it because if they did, that would mean they'd be obligated to treat it and they're not comfortable treating it? If they're not comfortable treating depression, is that because the Food and Drug Administration put them in a bind by putting warnings on the antidepressant medications about patients potentially committing suicide from the drugs? It's well established that rates of diagnosing and treating depression in primary care declined as soon as the FDA put those warnings on the medication as if to scare away primary care physicians from incurring the liability of prescribing those medications or if not having to have that discussion, hey, this drug may make you feel suicidal, better call me if it does. Or is it just because they're so overwhelmed with the level of complexity of the diseases they're treating, they don't feel they have the time it takes? Well. Admittedly, screening for depression is not as easy as screening for most other diseases that primary care physicians screen for when they see a patient. It's not as quick and as simple as putting a blood pressure cuff on a patient's arm and measuring their blood pressure. It's not as simple as taking a blood test and seeing a result outside the normal range, which, which indicates that someone is diabetic and needs to go on medication and diet and maybe insulin. Although that day is getting closer, you remember we talked a couple of shows back or so about a potential new blood test for depression in adults and prior to that one in adolescents as well. So someday it may get easier, but one way or another, there has to be routine screening for depression the way there is for other diseases in primary care, it's another disease that is easily diagnosable and that is treatable and that would prevent serious long-term health consequences and including death. And there is no reason why this can't be done. I think it should be done. And again, uh, there's no reason why suicide should be increasing and climb up to the 10th leading cause of death in this country. But what it's going to take is collaborative efforts on the parts of primary care physicians, uh, medical organizations such as the American Medical Association, employers or large purchasers of health insurance coverage, and health insurance companies who unfortunately are usually paying much more close attention to their own profits as opposed to what would be cost-effective healthcare interventions that would prevent long-term health consequences, disease, and death. But that's what it's going to take. It's also going to take an effort to 
educate the public that, hey, depression is a disease. It needs to be diagnosed and treated. It's like anything else you go to the doctor for. It is a physical, medical problem. It is genetic. It is a physiological problem due to an imbalance of hormones in the brain brought on by stress. It is very much a physical illness, and that's why it's treated with chemical or physical treatments, that is, medication. And until attitudes about this change and depression screening becomes routine in primary medical practice, then unfortunately I think we're going to see a persistence of the trend of suicide being among the leading causes of death in the United States, even as things like heart attack and stroke decrease. Well, we're going to have to take a commercial break right now. Be back with more on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott right after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's show, how your spouse's personality influences your career. You've heard it before. Behind every great man is a great woman and vice versa. As Facebook COO and Lean In author, Cheryl Sandberg so wisely noted at a conference for women in 2011. She said, the most important career choice you'll make is who you marry. Now, new research confirms it. Your spouse's personality, according to a study uh, to be published in an upcoming issue of Psychological Science, strongly influences how quickly you climb the career ladder. This is kind of the lean-on phenomenon. You lean on your spouse to help advance your career. It's no surprise that your home life spills over into your work life, a phenomenon that psychologists refer to as the crossover effect. However, the work-home connection has primarily been studied in the short term. For example, how a spat with your spouse in the morning may make your fuse a little shorter at the office throughout the day. The researchers in this case wanted to take a broader look at the connection. Specifically, how does your spouse's personality affect your workplace success? To answer this, they tracked the career progress of 4,544 married people over a period of five years an assessed couple's division of household duties, how they spend their free time together, and their level of relationship satisfaction. 
The study participants also took a personality test assessing what's commonly referred to in psychology as the big five traits. These are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. They're big five traits because these five constructs are supposed to define most of human individual differences, the ways we differ in terms of personality. Interestingly, only one spouse personality trait emerged as a significant predictor of career success. That was conscientiousness, which encompasses a number of positive qualities. Conscientious people tend to work hard, follow rules, be orderly and organized, responsible and reliable, and they're able to control their impulses and delay gratification. They understand that they're going to feel better and accomplish more just by working hard as opposed to procrastinating. In the study, employees with a conscientious partner tended to make more money and receive more promotions. This was true regardless of the spouse's employment status. In other words, people's careers enjoyed a boost when they were married to a reliable person, whether their spouse stayed at home or worked. And gender wasn't a factor. Both men and women benefited from a conscientious significant other. Why is conscientiousness so critical? The most obvious explanation is that if you have a reliable spouse, you'll likely feel less pressure at home. That is, he or she will absorb some of the household duties that would otherwise distract you from getting the job done at the office. The study showed, in fact, that partner conscientiousness was associated with outsourcing or assigning domestic duties to your spouse. The benefit boils down to mental energy and time. If you can come home after a hard day of work and not have to do a number of different tasks, then you can get the rest you need to start afresh the next day. You can also take your work home, allowing you to work even harder. Well, that may be, but I certainly don't advocate that. In my opinion, taking work home, not good for your mental health, not a good way to rest and be refreshed for the next day. This outsourcing even played a role for dual-income families, not just for those where one spouse stayed home. How? Well, working partners can still help manage finances, remember appointments, or even hire a nanny, all of which can ease your stress at home, allowing you to excel in your career. Highly conscientious couples divide responsibilities according to their strengths rather than traditional gender roles. That may make them more efficient at completing household tasks. If you enjoy your chores, they probably won't feel like work. You're doing your specialty. Maybe you're the person who cooks and you enjoy that. You could use that task as a way to decompress 
after a hard day. Another factor at play, over time, your spouse's reliability may rub off on you. Psychologists widely agree that married couples tend to adopt each other's traits, especially positive ones, which means years of living with a spouse who's on top of things could eventually make you more conscientious. View the relationship as a new entity, a group that's influenced by both spouses. If your spouse is working hard, it kind of sets the tone. That could easily rub off on you in terms of what is acceptable, what is prioritized within the relationship. Finally, spending lots of time with a responsible person may enhance your satisfaction in the relationship, which can carry over to your attitude on the job. Conscientiousness is related to happy, better relationships. And better relationships, in turn, lead to better work because you're able to focus on the job instead of worrying about your relationship and what's going on at home. Well, this is certainly very interesting research. Uh, I can certainly tell you that it is quite often the case that even after years of working hard and being conscientious in the relationship, people all too often find that this unfortunately does not rub off on their spouse. And the fact that their spouse uh, does not show these traits at all can be a source of tremendous stress and anguish and pain and marital dissatisfaction and unfortunately even lead to divorce. Uh, so hopefully, in the case of those of you listening, if you're working and whether your spouse is or not, and you have these traits of conscientiousness, again, whether you're working or not, that that is rubbing off on your spouse and helping them function in whatever role they're playing in your relationship. Well, let's turn our attention to the next subject on tonight's show. Multitasking is certainly something that gets talked about a lot these days in our very busy, technology-laden society. But the research that I've read about shows that multitasking is really a fallacy. Uh, the truth behind multitasking is that we think we can do it, but when we do it, we're not doing it well, and we grossly overestimate how well we can multitask. We try to focus on more than one thing at a time. It's to our detriment, and uh, the performance of the tasks certainly will suffer than if we focus on one thing at a time. Nonetheless, I came across this article that did some brain scans. It's about some research where they did some brain scans on media multitaskers, and they found certain differences in the brains of people who were frequent engagers in this media multitasking. So I thought, well, this is interesting insight into behavior and how the brain may actually be different. So let's talk about this. So it's simultaneously using mobile phones, laptops, and other media devices. You know this type of behavior. you got the TV on, you're 
you got your mobile phone going, you're on your laptop and your tablet all at once, right? Well, is it possible that this type of behavior is actually changing the structure of our brains? Well, a study published on September 24th in the journal PLOS One, PLOS One, reveals that people who frequently use several media devices at the same time have lower gray matter density in one particular region of the brain compared to those who use just one device occasionally. Now, gray matter is the cell bodies of brain cells. Uh, now, research supports earlier studies showing connections between this high degree of media multitasking activity and poor attention in the face of distractions, along with emotional problems such as depression and anxiety. So most of what we know about this behavior is that it is not adaptive, it is not helpful, and does not indicate a high degree of being able to pay attention. But scientists point out that this new study reveals a link between the behavior and the differing structure in the brain, not direct uh, causality, and they need to do a longer-term study to see what happens to understand whether this high concurrent media usage leads to changes in the brain structure, or is it the opposite, that those who have less dense gray matter in certain areas of the brain just inherently are more attracted to media multitasking. The researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, to look at the brain structures of 75 adults who had all answered a questionnaire regarding their use and consumption of media devices, including mobile phones and computers, as well as television and print media. And the fMRI, unlike a normal F uh, MRI machine that you may have been in, shows you someone who is awake and thinking and using their brain, and you can observe uh, where in the brain there is more or less activity depending on what they were doing. We'll take a commercial break here and go over the researchers' findings when we come back from that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team watchdog is a term given an organization like the united states justice foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and when necessary 
taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is Denise Simon. 18 hours a day, I live in a world as an intelligence analyst. What I find is reprehensible, what I find is terrifying, what I find is treasonous. The mainstream media has completely failed the American people. So join me for the Denise Simon Experience every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's webradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you welcome back to psychiatry today with your host psychiatrist dr scott bay and we're talking about media multitaskers and what some researchers found when they put these folks in a functional mri brain scanner well they found that independent of individual personality traits people who used a higher number of media devices simultaneously, cell phone, laptop, tablet, TV, also had smaller gray matter density in the part of the brain known as the anterior cingulate cortex. This is the region most notably responsible for cognitive and emotional control functions. Media multitasking is becoming more prevalent in our lives today. And there is increasing concern about its impacts on our cognition and social-emotional well-being. This study was the first to reveal links between media multitasking and brain structure. Scientists have previously demonstrated that brain structure can be altered upon prolonged exposure to novel environments and experience. The brain pathways can change based on our behaviors, environment, emotions, and it can happen at the level of the cell, in the case of learning and memory, or remapping of parts of the brain, which is how specific functions of a damaged brain region could be remapped to a remaining intact region. Other studies have shown that certain training, such as learning to juggle, or London taxi drivers who learn getting around the city, that this can increase gray matter densities in certain parts of the brain. The exact mechanisms of these changes are still unclear. Although it is conceivable that individuals with a small anterior cingulate cortex are more susceptible to multitasking situations, 
due to weaker ability in cognitive control or emotional regulation, it is equally plausible that higher levels of exposure to multitasking situations leads to structural changes in this part of the brain. And therefore, because it's not clear which way things are going, a longer-term study is needed so that scientists can unambiguously determine what the direction of causation is. Do people with less gray matter intensity in this part of the brain gravitate more toward media multitasking? Or do we need to be concerned that when we do this, that we're somehow altering the structure of our brains to our detriment? Kind of scary. Well, I wouldn't worry about it too much for now, although would it be better to just focus on one thing at a time? Yes. Uh, but I, I think it's far too premature to come out and say, well, you know, if you're just using all these devices all at once, it's bad for your brain. Uh, certainly an intriguing initial result, but we have to wait for more findings um, before uh, there are definitive answers about this issue. Let's move on to another brain study, and this time we're talking about fibromyalgia. Now, I'm talking about this not because I think fibromyalgia is a psychiatric illness. Certainly it is not. However, there is a very, very high degree of suffering of depression and anxiety and insomnia and trouble with thinking and concentration and focus and memory in people who suffer from fibromyalgia. So certainly... There are a lot of psychiatric problems that people with fibromyalgia are known to suffer. So let's look at this latest research. Brain scans show that people with fibromyalgia, which is a pain disorder, react differently to what others would consider non-painful sights and sounds. This small new study provides clues to what might be going wrong in the nervous system of people with fibromyalgia, along with possible new approaches to alleviating their pain. If we understand the mechanism, we may come up with new and potentially better forms of treatment. Fibromyalgia, which patients experience as widespread muscle pain and fatigue, affects as many as 5 million Americans most commonly middle-aged women. Its cause is unknown and there is no cure, but medications can sometimes treat the symptoms. The new study suggests not only that fibromyalgia is related to greater processing of pain-related signals, but also potentially to a misprocessing of other types of non-painful sensory signals that may be important to address during treatment. And just like the study we talked about before on media multitasking, this research team also used functional magnetic resonance imaging, which again measures blood flow changes in the brain 
while someone is thinking of something or performing a mental task to assess brain responses. And they looked at 35 women with fibromyalgia and 25 similar women who didn't have it. The fibromyalgia patients were more sensitive to non-painful stimulation compared to people without fibromyalgia. And by the way, this study was reported in the journal Arthritis and Rheumatism. Researchers showed the subjects some colors, played some audio tones, and asked subjects to perform very simple motor tasks at the, to- at the same time. For example, like touching the tip of the right thumb with another finger. Areas of the brain's cortex primarily responsible for processing visual, auditory, and motor signals were significantly activated in the healthy comparison group, but not in the fibromyalgia group. However, other brain regions that are not relevant for primary processing were activated in the fibromyalgia sufferers, but not in healthy controls. What seems to be happening is that the brains of fibromyalgia patients are under-processing certain forms of sensory information at the first stages of processing, but are also amplifying the signal at a later level of sensory integration of multiple sensory inputs. What this means is when you are in pain, it is probable that you are more concentrated on your own pain than on the tasks you have to pay attention to. These findings provide further support for the idea that psychological strategies aimed at changing the focus of attention from the body to external cues could be useful for these patients. Of course, there were only a very small number of people involved in the study, and the researchers did not account for other mental health conditions that participants may have had. Both of these are factors that limit the utility of the results. As I said, people with fibromyalgia often also have conditions like depression, so some people believe the disorder has a mental basis. But evidence for a neuroanatomical basis for fibromyalgia is growing. There is increasing evidence that fibromyalgia is not just a pain condition. More recent research done on persons with fibromyalgia, such as this, suggests that persons with fibromyalgia suffer from a central processing deficit of multiple types of sensory stimuli, not just pain. It's as if the volume control for sensation in persons with fibromyalgia is turned up or louder for many types of sensation, including pain, compared to persons without the disorder. That may help explain why many people with fibromyalgia also often suffer from fatigue, cognitive problems, or mood disturbance. Currently, people with fibromyalgia can take anticonvulsant medications such as Lyrica and antidepressants such as Cymbalta and Civella, which have been FDA-approved 
for treating fibromyalgia. Further research to improve understanding of where there are problems in the brain for people with the disorder, hopefully will lead to the development of new treatments. For example, it would be interesting to see if a treatment targeted at dampening this response in an area of the brain that overreacted in this study would help to treat fibromyalgia symptoms. Like a lot of psychiatric illnesses, even though fibromyalgia is not considered a psychiatric illness, there is a tremendous amount of stigma about it. I would have to say the level of stigma and ignorance and prejudice against patients with fibromyalgia certainly is on a par with that of most mental illnesses. Uh, and you even have physicians saying they, quote-unquote, don't believe that fibromyalgia is really a disease. Uh, they think it's, quote-unquote, all in a patient's head. Uh, and some refuse to acknowledge the reality of the diagnosis, despite the fact that it is well established by all medical authorities that the diagnosis is real. There is a very specific way to diagnose the illness uh, with very specific diagnostic criteria. Uh, part of the problem is some physicians make this diagnosis without thoroughly sticking to the diagnostic criteria and instead throw up their hands when someone is in pain and they can't find a cause and say, well, it must be fibromyalgia. Here's this antidepressant. So certainly patients with it are stigmatized. Uh, there's a lot of self-stigmatization. A lot of patients with fibromyalgia who are on antidepressants are quick to say they're on the antidepressants for fibromyalgia, not for depression. So the fact that this study shows there's something going on in the brain that shows differences in sensory information processing with patients with fibromyalgia hopefully will go a long way to validating the diagnosis and eventually leading uh, to new treatments. All right, we're going to take another commercial break and we'll be back with more mental health related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that dizziness may be a sign of heart disease, iron deficiency, high or low blood pressure, low blood sugar, or an inner ear infection? Dizziness can be take the form of a spinning sensation, also known as vertigo, or a feeling of lightheadedness. The individual can also feel faint or have a rapid heartbeat. If you take high blood pressure medication, remember to take the medication daily as directed to control your blood pressure. Diabetics must remember to eat after taking their medication and to eat at regular intervals. If you have anemia, make sure to take a multivitamin that contains iron and to eat vegetables such as spinach. Dizziness after a cold or flu may be due to a virus. If you have dizziness, it is important to see your doctor for a complete physical examination. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Who is or what? is USJF. It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's show, evidence of a genetic link to post-traumatic stress disorder in soldiers exposed to childhood trauma, right? So here's this week's veterans and military mental health update, along with some information that will certainly help the civilian population. Now, in the fight-or-flight response, uh, which is thought to play a role in the development of post-traumatic stress disorder, until now, there's no genetic evidence of this connection. But a study found an interaction between a particular gene and childhood adversity. Now, for individuals with two or more experiences of childhood trauma, such as abuse, uh, a particular gene was associated with risk for developing post-traumatic stress disorder in adulthood. These findings are significant for the study of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and for the treatment and prevention of stress-related illnesses, and may also have implications for treating pain, which has also been linked to this same gene. This is the first report of genetic risk factors for PTSD in a group of National Guard soldiers, and it adds to the developing evidence based on the role of genetic influences in PTSD. The findings were published online in the journal of the AMA Psychiatry Journal. Researchers analyzed results from 810 Ohio National Guard soldiers who took part in the Ohio National Guard study of risk and resilience. All of them had reported experiencing a potentially traumatic event in their lives. Nearly three-quarters of the guardsmen had been deployed to combat zones, including in Iraq and Afghanistan, and 42% had seen active military combat. Service members were asked about their childhood exposure to experiences of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, or witnessing of violence between parents, 
Soldiers were further asked about adult trauma, including 33 categories of deployment-related and non-deployment events, and then evaluated for PTSD symptoms using a 17-item PTSD checklist. A replication cohort of predominantly African-American female civilians enrolled in the Grady Trauma Project in Atlanta was evaluated for childhood adversity, adult trauma, and PTSD symptoms in a similar fashion. This just means that they chose uh, a different group to try to evaluate for the same type of problems, but in a civilian population. Now, they found strong evidence that this particular gene variation they were looking at was associated with PTSD in their group of male soldiers. A particular note is that the identical interaction took place in the control group of civilians. Together, these outcomes suggest that this gene interacts with child adversity and either results in a vulnerability to PTSD or resilience to developing PTSD symptoms following adult trauma. While it would be a very exciting development if they could narrow down a particular gene variation as uh, showing whether someone with childhood trauma is going to be vulnerable to developing PTSD in adulthood. Soldiers with one particular type of variation of this gene were the most resilient to adult PTSD symptoms given exposure to two or more types of childhood adversity. Those with a different variation of the gene had an intermediate risk of adult PTSD symptoms, and those with a third variation had the greatest risk of adult PTSD symptoms. The question of whether the genetic risks for developing PTSD are similar in other populations that are exposed to different traumas at different periods in their lives remains to be further tested. Lifetime trauma exposure was also a strong predictor of PTSD symptoms regardless of which variation of this gene. This was not unexpected since epidemiologic studies have identified severity of trauma exposure as a major risk factor for PTSD. In other words, if someone is just exposed to too much trauma over their lifetime, regardless of uh, the genetic variation involved, they're going to be more vulnerable to developing PTSD. By understanding how PTSD develops, and looking at these genetic variations will help contribute to that understanding. This will better position clinicians to employ effective prevention and intervention strategies in the military and beyond. So hopefully um, this uh, research on this particular gene variation will lead to potential new treatments and uh, who knows, perhaps better ways of screening people uh, for 
those who are at risk for PTSD. All right. Next up on the show, sticking with the topic of PTSD, here's an article that says yogic breathing shows promise in reducing symptoms of PTSD. It is well known that yoga is one of many things that helps people reduce levels of stress. So let's take a look at this then. Now, one of the greatest casualties of war is its lasting effect on the minds of soldiers. This presents a daunting public health problem. More than 20% of veterans returning from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have post-traumatic stress disorder. A new study from the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds This is at the Wiseman Center of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, offers hope for those suffering from PTSD. Researchers there have shown that a breathing-based meditation practice called Sudarshan Kriya Yoga can be an effective treatment for PTSD. Now, granted, unfortunately, there are going to be some people we're going to see this as some sort of new age thing they're not really interested in. But I think that's a shame uh, because the researchers did try to look at this objectively and scientifically. So let's see what they found. Well, first of all, individuals with PTSD, as you know, suffer from intrusive memories, heightened anxiety, and personality changes. The hallmark of the disorder is hyperarousal which can be defined as overreacting to innocuous innocuous stimuli and is often described as feeling jumpy or easily startled and constantly on guard. Hyperarousal is one aspect of the autonomic nervous system. That's the system that controls the beating of the heart and rate of breathing and other bodily functions, and it governs one's ability to respond to his or her environment. Think of the fight-or-flight response, for example. Scientists believe hyperarousal is at the core of PTSD and the driving force behind some of its symptoms. Standard treatment interventions for PTSD offer mixed results. Some individuals are prescribed antidepressants and do well, while others do not. Others are treated with psychotherapy and still experience residual effects of the disorder. Sudarshan Kriya Yoga is a practice of controlled breathing that directly affects the autonomic nervous system. While the practice has been proven effective in balancing the autonomic nervous system and reducing PTSD symptoms in tsunami survivors, it has not been well studied until now. The team was interested in Sudarshan Yoga because of its focus on manipulating the breath and how that, in turn, may have consequences for the autonomic nervous system and specifically hyperarousal. Theirs is the first randomized, controlled, long-term study to show that the practice of this controlled type of breathing can benefit people with PTSD. This was a preliminary attempt to begin to gather some information 
on whether this practice of yogic breathing actually reduces symptoms of PTSD. And they wanted to find out whether reduction in symptoms was associated with biological measures that may be important in hyperarousal. Tests included measuring eye blink startle magnitude and respiration rates in response to stimuli such as noise bursts. Respiration is one of the functions controlled by the autonomic nervous system. Eye blink startle rate is an involuntary response that can be used to measure one component of hyperarousal. These two measurements reflect aspects of mental health because they affect how an individual regulates emotion. The study included 21 soldiers, an active group of 11, control group of 10. Those who had the one-week training in yogic breathing showed lower anxiety, reduced respiration rates, and fewer PTSD symptoms. Admittedly, very small groups, but hopefully if this could be replicated with larger amounts of soldiers, it could be helpful because at least 22 veterans take their own lives every day. And because this type of yoga has already been shown to increase optimism in college students and reduce stress and anxiety in people suffering from depression, it may be an effective way to decrease suffering and quite possibly the incidence of suicide among veterans. The study was published in the Journal of Traumatic Stress, and it was funded by a grant from the Disabled Veterans of America Charitable Service Trust and individual donors. And with that, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you about mental health issues, and I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.